Exodus chapter 34. We've been working through this passage of Scripture as far as memorizing it as a church. It's a statement that God made to Moses when he said that he was going to display his glory. It wasn't that he so much displayed his glory. He gave uh, words for Moses to grab onto about God, for him to understand. And We've been working through this uh, passage in its context in multiple passages of the Old Testament, but I do want us to come back to it and just remind ourselves of this. If you've been memorizing this, you should be at the point now where you can kind of, you know, half the time not look at it and be okay and uh, be all right. But uh, for those of you that have not memorized it, uh, it's Exodus chapter 34, and we might say, 6b because it's not the first part it's the second part that uh, we start off and then go right into verse number seven of this statement of god about what he is like his glory and what he is so let's start off uh, with the statement of the lord there the lord the lord god merciful and gracious long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Now you have uh, that statement, and I just want to continue a little bit further because it's going to play a role in the passage that we're going to look at tonight in Psalm 103. Because after the Lord uh, makes this statement to Moses, it says that in verse 8, Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped. Okay, this ought to be the response of individuals as they hear a statement like God like this, that really all we can do is go, this one is worthy. I, I do not match up to this. I'm not like this. You are worthy of praise. You are worthy of worship. And then Moses went on and he said, if, I now, if now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. See, the issue was this, is that God had told, uh, told Moses that I would not, will not go up with the people. You know, I'll, I'll lead you and I'll be outside the camp, but I'm not going to go up with you. Uh, this is a people who are ones who really are stubborn. And what Moses acknowledges is, yes, we are stubborn. We're stiff-necked uh, and that, but we are asking you that you would give us pardon. This word pardon is one that we're going to see in the text of Psalm 103, but the idea is this, is that uh, it is giving a reprieve or forgiveness to someone in an official position. It's an official pardon, as we might put it, uh, that you have today, that you have government officials that get pardoned, cleared uh, of any sort of guilt for a crime that is there. And it is a problem for God's people that we oftentimes uh, in our life well, forget who we're dealing with. It's good for us to be reminded of what God is like and then worship God because we're too quick to suddenly get a better impression of ourselves uh, because we don't remember what God is like and we go our own way oftentimes because we haven't worshiped God and given Him the worth that He's deserving of. 
Now, we, we have this passage here, this proclamation of God, and as we've been working through different passages of the Old Testament, this seems to be, and you can turn over to Psalm 103 at this point, this seems to be what some have described a creed that is used by the people of Israel. And you say, what's a creed? Well, a creed is like, I don't know if some of you grew up in a, you know, in a school environment or perhaps a church environment where they had a thing called a catechism. And the catechism uh, would ask a question and there, there would be a standard ask, a answer to it. I went looking for the one that I had uh, when I was in elementary school. I could not find it. It was one I think uh, uh, B.J. Press had come up with for, for kids. But probably one of the more famous ones is the Westminster Catechism come up with about 400 years ago where uh, the Church of England was attempting to organize what their beliefs are going to be, and you had a bunch of Puritans that were a part of this uh, trying to come up with uh, statements of fact, doctrine, to be able to teach people. And you have the first question that's this, it's what is the chief, of ma uh, chief end of man? The answer would have been this, that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever that we get to magnify him and that we get to be in his presence forever that is what the chief goal of life for man now the second question would have been this what rule hath god given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him and the answer to that is the word of god which is contained in the scriptures in the old and the new testament is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him the third question was, is what do the Scriptures principally teach? And the question is answered this way. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty, responsibility, God requires of man. The fourth one is a question that sounds very similar to the things that we had stated here uh, in Exodus and now in Psalm 103. The question is, what is God? And the answer that you would have heard people if you were in a church that uh, had this as part of their teaching, the response would be this. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. For the nation of Israel, what we have just stated is kind of a catechism or a statement that was perhaps taught from generation to generation about who God is to give them a compact statement that they could hold on to and as we look at Psalm 103 you note that this is a Psalm of David see Moses lived about 1445 uh, David was ruling around 10,000 or excuse me 1000 BC so about 400 years later uh, David is one who at least three times we looked at a psalm last week in psalm 86 uh we look at here and then we'll look at one in psalm 145 where david uses this in fact almost quotes it directly and uses it uh in ways that uh, he applies how it should be used this statement was something to well plant your life on to live your life around uh if you understood what it meant and for us, this psalm this evening is one that is filled with worship. I mean, last time we see the, the David, we looked at the passage in Psalm 86, what David was using that statement of God about was to pray more effectively. 
You know, how should we pray for certain things? Well, remember the characteristics of God. They're like this and like this and like this. Well, what David does in this passage, he's giving us instructions on what we know about God. We now know how to praise God. We know how to praise as the result of understanding what God is like. And so this statement he's going to use to really teach the nation, because this is not so much a psalm that is a private psalm about David's problems, as many of the psalms of David are. There's some personal situation he's writing about it. It's kind of a general psalm, and it seems to be that he wrote this for the nation to, well, use, to teach them on how to praise God. I want to read through this psalm, first of all, and and, uh, you're going to, as you go through it, there are going to be passages that you go, oh, I've heard that before. But we're looking at this passage through the lens of, okay, this statement, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, one who is keeping mercy uh, for thousands, that statement that is in the center part of this, and just see how it's used as David shows the nation of Israel how to praise God. It says in verse number one, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all iniquities? Who healeth all thy diseases? Who redeemeth thy life from destruction? Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies? Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle's? The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. And then this quote, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, He remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. Uh, For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. And the place thereof, know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. And his righteousness unto children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them the lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all and then kind of going back to that initial kind of sound at the beginning of the psalm bless the lord ye his angels that excel in strength that do his commandments hearkening unto the voice of his word Bless ye the Lord, all ye hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now I'll just stop there for a second and say, look at the next psalm and see how it starts. Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
And then look at how it ends in verse 35. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So the Psalms uh, that are here, uh, though we're going to specifically focus on 103, Psalm 104 is a part of this pattern. As one says, there's a close connection. The two Psalms praise God as Savior and Creator because 104 is talking about how, how God deals with the animals and how He dealt with the creating of boundaries on the earth with the land and the water. Uh, he's Savior, Creator, Father, and Sustainer. He's merciful and mighty. And so you go through this psalm and you find initially that David is challenging his own self to praise God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I need to be doing this. And when he uses that term, my soul, what he's saying is that this praise is not just a surface thing. You know, how many times do you go through a service and you have opportunity to praise God or sing praise to God? And you do it without thinking. You're not connected. See, what David's saying is not just that my body is singing praises, but my soul and spirit's not connected to this. No, he goes, my whole being is a part of this. Body, soul, spirit. Everything in me is a part of this praise. It's not that I'm unthinking in this. No, my mind is a part of this. My emotions are a part of this. My will is a part of this. Everything about me is praising you. That's what praise ought to be like, being connected. And for David, he's challenging himself to bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and bless his holy name. But then he says this in verse 2, bless the Lord, O oh my souls, and forget not all his benefits. See, there are reasons why we oftentimes don't bless God. A, we forget what He's like, but B, we forget what He has done. What He really has done for us. You know, we ought to, on regular occasions, have that hymn go through our mind, count your many blessings. Or we might, in this context, count your many benefits, see what God hath done. You know, that, that might be a, a way of putting it into context here. But there are a lot of things that God does, and we don't praise Him because we've forgotten what He has specifically done in and to us. I mean, verse 3 and 4 and 5 give us those things that are the more important things that God has done that we ought to praise Him for. And think about verse number 3. Here you have that one statement, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. That's the word that Moses used in in, uh, verse uh, 9 of chapter 34 of Exodus where he said, would you forgive the stiff-necked people? Are you not thankful that God has forgiven all of your sins? That there's not a sin out there that we would in this, uh, put it in this category, the one that you can't get ever paid for? I don't remember the exact term right now. I'm forgetting it. But some churches, they have sins that you can't atone for. 
can't possibly be paid for. It's too great. I mean, you think about David and the one who wrote this is the same one who wrote Psalm 51. Where in Psalm 51, David comes and confesses his sin. It's after he had done all of the sin that he had done with Bathsheba and the murdering of Uriah the Hittite and all of that. And God forgave his sins. Now, it's not to say that he didn't have consequences. Oh, he had consequences for it. But when it comes to his stance with God forever, his sins were forgiven. Every sin. It's not that when you, uh, you think about your own life, there's not uh, this thing where if you're a believer in Jesus Christ that one day you'll get to heaven and he'll go, wait a second, you've got a few years to pay off here. No, scripture doesn't talk about a purgatory. There's nothing like that. No, your sins have been completely forgiven. And if anything ought to get us to praise God and say, I have eternal life. I have fellowship with God forever. And it's because he has been willing to grant me a pardon for every one of the things I've done. I mean, I could stop here, close it up, and go, that's enough to be willing to praise God for. But, but see what else he says here that God gives us as part of the, the benefits. How about this one? Who healeth of all thy diseases. Now, some of you are going, I have had sickness all my life. But have there been occasions where you've had sickness and you've been healed from it? Was it because you had fantastic physicians that you were healed? God may have used them, but it's because he was the one who was doing the healing. And ultimately, think about this, and I talked a little bit about this at a funeral service yesterday. Uh, think about this, a person who ends up in glory no longer has any of the sorrows or sicknesses of this life. That's one of the glories of heaven, Revelation 21 tells us, that none of the sorrow and the sickness, nor the death that uh, we have in this life, will be a part of this, that ultimately one day we'll be in the presence of God. Never, ever to see a hospital again. Never, ever to see a funeral home again. That God has given us this kind of thing that, granted, He may not have healed our diseases and He's may not do it at this point but he will do it for eternity or how about this uh this one who redeemeth our life from destruction now some have read that and go okay were there some near death experiences that i've had and I think if we were to go, okay, uh, could you tell me near-death experiences, we could go around the room and everybody here would have uh, an occasion or two or three uh, where you came very close to dying. I mean, I, I think of an occasion in my life where I was uh, in flight school and I was training to fly and I was on uh, what is called the long, uh, your long cross country, solo cross country. And I landed in an airport that I was unfamiliar with. And I had a plane that was known as a tail dragger. 
You go, what's a tail dragger? A tail dragger is a plane that sits like this. Most planes have a nose wheel. But back in the old days, they had planes that had two wheels, and then the other wheel was in the back. So it sits like this. And the problem with a tail dragger is that when you're on the ground, you can't see anything directly in front of you. You kind of weave back and forth so you can kind of see what's on in front of you, but you can't really see what's in front of you. And when I landed that airplane, I came into the place where you're supposed to park, and it's this big rectangle uh, piece of asphalt that is there uh, where a bunch of planes could park. And there was a guy that was waving me in, so I followed his instructions. And so he was telling me to go this way, and so I made my plane go this way. And then finally he went like this and told me to come straight at him, and so I turned the plane and went straight at him. And it was at that instant that my plane's wing went the top, across the top of a gasoline truck that I had never seen. You know, it's that type of thing where you're just kind of like, well, thank you, Lord. <clears throat> I was following instructions. I found out later, don't pay attention to anybody. Park the plane like you're supposed to. You know, but it being a new kid flying an airplane you figure that guy has some authority uh, but i found out real quick no you're the person in charge you do what you need to with your plane you know that's a near-death experience near destruction if that blade on the propeller had landed in the side of that truck you've all had experiences like this but it's not just merely that type of destruction that's being talked about here. The word has a, a probably a deeper sense to it. As people look at this in context and how it's used elsewhere, there, the, the idea is this, is not just that we're talking about being put in the grave. It's talking about being put into hell. I mean, for us, if you think about uh, that he has redeemed our life from hell. Jesus paid the price so that we would not have to go to hell ourselves. He suffered hell on the cross. He suffered the eternal judgment of God, uh, the punishment that we deserve, so that we would never have to go to someplace like that, a place of utter destruction. And he did it by the cost of his own dear son. I mean, that's something to do this. But then you have this statement. Here is uh, a God in verse number four, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercy. The idea of a, a garland around the head. And these are the two words that are used in the statement about God that he's eventually going to bring up again. That God is the one who is moved with compassion and he's one who is loyal to us. That word loving kindness is the word has said. It's used throughout the Old Testament just simply saying that God is loyal to his promises. He's loyal to his people. And you may not be loyal to him, but you think about this when I, yesterday, Psalm 23 was part of uh, the service yesterday at the funeral uh, that was in, and you have that final statement. It says this, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And the idea is this, is that surely goodness and mercy will pursue me. There's no way I'm getting away from it. 
Here the idea is that this loyalty of God and this compassion that God has is something that's circled around me. I can't get away from it. Everywhere I turn, it's with me. God's mercy, God's compassion is with me wherever I go. I can't escape it. And beyond that, he gives us a whole lot of things we don't deserve. You look at verse number five and it says this, this is a God who satisfieth thy mouth with good things. Now, I think he's talking about more than just food. I think he's just simply saying he gives us a lot of things in this life that are satisfying, that are enjoyable. He gives us those things richly to enjoy as we find uh, from the scripture that he gives us a lot of things that we don't deserve that are blessings or niceties we might put it that way but god gives us these things and so when you get done with all of this you just simply say well bless the lord my soul why would i bless him well it's because of all of his benefits of what he has done but also we ought to bless him for who he is we ought to praise him for who he is. And that's what you get. You get this kind of shift in verse 6 as you look at this psalm. And it says this, The Lord is one who executes righteousness and judgment for all who are oppressed. God does things for people in need that are his. And you say, well, I'm not sure. Do we have an example of that? Well, you read verse number 7. He made his ways known unto Moses and his acts unto the children of Israel. And you immediately go, oh, well, he's talking about the exodus. He's talking about that occasion in Israel's history where they cried out to God as the result of the difficulty they were having at the hands of the taskmasters of the Egyptians and that they were suffering greatly. And they cried unto the Lord and the Lord responded to them and by His mighty hand through ten plagues and other miracles that went on and deliverance at the Red Sea, uh, God delivered the nation of Israel. He rescued them and he freed those that were oppressed nation of israel was in a situation of slavery he released them and brought them to mount sinai where they had this statement verse 8 not proclaimed to them directly but to moses who then related it to them this statement that god is verse 8 merciful and gracious okay so the word merciful there is the fact that he is one who is moved with compassion gracious is the word that we would talk about receiving something that we don't deserve he's a gracious god he's slow to anger which that's going to be important as we look at the history of the nation of israel and us he's plenteous in mercy has said and understand this he's not a god that holds he's long-suffering in the sense of punishing us immediately but think about this he's also look at verse number nine he will not always chide neither will he keep his anger forever you go what does that mean well he is not going to hold on to things you know sometimes we do this with people they do something that they shouldn't do to us. They say something, they hurt us, and they come up and they go, uh, can I have forgiveness? I'm sorry. You go, I'm sorry. 
But what do you do afterwards? You, you hold this bitterness and, and you hold this fact that they did something against you. And of course, if you hold on to it sooner or later, it'll eventually come back out again that, oh, well, I remember like 15 years ago, you did this to me. Really? You, you've held on to it all that time, this bitterness of soul, that something that was done to you, you're still holding, yeah, a grudge. You know, God's not like that. See, God is one who is long-suffering, and though he does punish his children, and the, the idea of punishing his children is more chastening than it is punishment, but you have this chastening that takes place that God does, and he's done with it. And you go, well, I, I, I'm not sure how that works. Well, look at how it's described in verse, uh, well, verse number 10. First of all, he has not dealt with us after our sins. Say, so how do you know that? Because if he dealt with us according to our sins, the first sin we committed, we would have died. Immediately. If God was going to be completely righteous in the sense of saying the soul that sinneth, it shall die, we would have died instantaneously. God didn't do that. He's not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Now, that's a pretty incredible statement. We haven't gotten what we deserved, and there is this thought process that you have to include and think about when it comes to this. God did not just merely go, I forgive your sins, because he said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, and that sin had to be punished. It was part of uh, us sinning. God said this was going to be the case. But God didn't just merely go, oh, your sins are okay. No, God in his righteousness had to judge sin. If God didn't judge sin, it would have been a failure of his character. He would cease to be God. He must do what he says. And for this statement to be true, we understand it from a New Testament perspective because we know what it costs God to hold to this. It cost him his son on a cross. His son took our punishment so that we wouldn't get the full weight of our judgment, the full weight of our sins. And it's not that God just merely overlooked our sins. No, our sins were paid for by his own precious son. And so when you see a statement like that, you go, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor reward us according to our iniquities. Oh, well, God's, you know, okay, it's okay. Don't worry. Your sin was all right. No. God still judged it, and it was something that was costly to him. But then in going with the idea that God does not keep his, uh, his anger forever, and he not always chides, there's two illustrations here. Verse 11, for as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he hath he removed our transgressions from us. You know, what does that mean? Well, what David is using is the terms that he could use in his time frame to describe the farthest away we could possibly describe. Your guilt for your sins have been removed so far as is the east is from the west. Now, we do recognize now that, you know, unless you're a flat earther, uh, but uh, we do realize that if you go east, you'll eventually come back to where you're at. 
And if you go west, you'll eventually come back to where you're at. But in this understanding, they're thinking flat. You go east, you go west, they're not coming back together again. And that's what our sins are like. They're not coming back. The judgment for them is not coming back. The punishment for those sins are not coming back. God's saying they are so far removed. I've taken them away from you. The guilt and the punishment for it. I've done this and it is so far removed that I'm not going to bring it back up again. No, that's truly what forgiveness is. is not bringing something back up. He, he doesn't bring things back up and go, well, remember this. And it's not that we're going to be in heaven someday and God's going to go, oh, hey, let's bring this back up again. No. He's forgiven those things. And He will take them and remove the guilt and the punishment far, far from us. You know, God knows who we are. You know, God's not surprised at what we're like. You say, why? Well, verse number 13, like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. He knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. And you go, why would he know that? Well, you have in Genesis chapter 2 that he formed the dust out of the ground, shaped man, breathed into the breath of life, and he knows the next person that was made was made out of a rib of that dust. And God recognizes that we are weak. We're not like him. He's infinite in all his ways and his power. We're not like that. He knows that because he's the one who initially took interest in us and took that dust and breathed in us the breath of life and made us in his image to fellowship with him. He knows what we're like. He's not taken back by that. No, he knows our frame. We are, we are like dust and he knows what our time is like on this earth. It's seemingly short and it would be shorter if it wasn't for the grace of God and his compassion. But he describes our life this way. Uh, verse 15, as for man, his days are as grass and the flower of the field, so he flourisheth, for the wind passeth over it and is gone. I mean, the people in the nation of Israel would have known what this was like. They have a flower over there that looks much like a tulip. They call it a lily, but uh, they, it looks like a tulip, and it's all over in their fields over there, especially in January and February where it's raining and, and uh, it's the cooler season, and you can just go to the hillsides and it's covered with this. And I remember coming back from uh, the trip that we took over to Israel, and we had been there in February and took a couple pictures of uh, the, these flowers that were there on the side of the hill and took a close-up of one. And it was later that year in May that uh, one of the teenagers uh, went to Israel with their parents uh, and their sister, brothers and sisters. And they came back and he says, I want to show you a picture. And he showed me a picture of what that flower looked like in May. I showed the picture and it was this bright red flower with this yellow interior and whatever. And it's very beautiful. And he took a picture and it was brown. And you go, that's the change from what it looks like in Israel in February to when you get to May when it's 100 degrees outside. 
and just a, a breeze can burn out grass. And that's how God pictures us. He knows that we're as frail as a flower the wind that takes place and goes on, uh, that He is uh, one who knows that we are like that. But as you go in verse 17, it says this, but of the Lord, mercy of the Lord, it's from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear Him and His righteousness unto His children's children. Understand this, that we have God that is uh, one who is with us forever. He's been here eternity past and He's going to be with us to eternity future. He is the everlasting God. And that His righteousness is extended unto children's children. You know what? God is gracious to us and He's gracious to our children. And sometimes, thankfully, He's gracious to our children despite who we are. And He's good to them. And He's good to the next generations. Just as Exodus chapter 34, 6, and 7 says that there is uh, this idea that God uh, is gracious to thousands. He keeps mercy for thousands. So it is that He's gracious from generation to generation. He keeps His covenant to those that remember His commandments to do them. And you see this final statement, the Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens and His kingdom ruleth over all. And so you see all these things where God was gracious to, the nation, to David and saying, here's all the blessings I had. He was blessed, was a good God to the nation of Israel, and he was also just good to people in general that love him. And then he simply says, so what do we do now? Well, here's what we ought to have. Not only should people bless the Lord, but his angels and all his hosts and besides that why not to verse 22 all of his works and all places of his dominion bless the lord O my soul your god is a god as it says of mercy compassion full of goodness and truth he's long suffering with us because he remembers our frame is but dust and you go i don't know what to praise him for this passage is a start, seeing what God does and who He is ought to cause us to go, I am not great, but the God who is my God is a great God, a loving God, a compassionate God. He's worthy of my praise. So I want us to, at this point, uh, we've got a song that we're going to sing in the closing here, and I'll have my piano player and the director get up here, uh, but it's uh, number 35. Uh, Praise my soul, the King of Heaven. Uh, if you look at uh, the music there up in the left-hand corner, it actually says, from Psalm 103. Uh, this is a song that has many different tunes to it. If you look at the bottom, uh, there are tunes that you can sing it to, such as Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. You can sing it to that. Um, I don't know if it can be sung to Amazing Grace's tune, uh, but a lot of songs can. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of different tunes to this, but it is a song that, uh, was, when it was written, was written uh, in a uh, reminder of what Psalm 103 said. Uh, and so the idea is there, what do I do? I bless the Lord. In this passage, praise the Lord, the King of heaven. 
And uh, so it's a tune that is a familiar tune. It's not the, the regular tune that is sung with this, but uh, it is a familiar tune. And we're going to go ahead and sing all four verses of it. I think it would be appropriate for us to shape our praise and give it to God uh, in a song that is uh, directly correlating to Psalm 103. So it's a uh, song is found on number 35 in your red book and uh, praise my soul, the King of Heaven.